The title for tonight's talk is Theology 101, all right? And uh, when I actually did Chico Project in my first summer here, a talk titled the same thing was actually something that really inspired me, um, just to try and understand more of what Christians believe and why they believe it and how that fits in with all the things that they believe, you know, um, just figuring out how it fits together. So the speaker recommended a book called Systematic Theology, um, by Wayne Grudem, and going through that, which took me about a year because it's a massive book, um, really helped me to connect some pieces that I didn't connect before. And then a series of lectures called Foundations by R.C. Sproul was also really helpful, just to me personally. So I pulled a lot from both of those for tonight, and those along with some other resources are listed on the very back of page. So my goal is basically to get you excited about learning more about God. That's my entire goal for tonight, is to make you excited enough to want to dig into things by yourself and not just eat up what someone else tells you. Um, The idea of theology, you know, it's something like the study of God. Uh, It's actually really a way we can get to know God more. And the more you get to know God, the more you love him, and the more you want to understand more about him. It's kind of something that builds on itself. So the idea is really simple to understand, Um, you know, fitting all the pieces together of Christian belief, but it's a really huge task to work through. So when you hear the word theology, you might get kind of a picture like this in your head. You know, it's like this dusty room full of old books. Like, it's so boring, it's even in black and white. Like, that's messed up, you know. And, like, the guy just looks like he's kind of despairing at how it's doing, you know. He's just sitting there, like, sad. Um, But that's really not what theology is like. Um, You know, the definition in your handout is the study of the nature of God and religious belief or religious beliefs and theory when systematically developed. Okay, so the purpose, again, is to understand how the Bible fits together. And for me, that's really interesting. I like kind of seeing how, like, different things work together to make a system work. So for me, it's like, oh, like, this leads to that, leads to that. Like, that's so cool, you know. And for you, it might be the total opposite. You might be like, that sounds boring and way too complicated and too hard to fit fit together. Um, But either way, this is really not something we get to ignore as Christians. You know, as as soon as someone asks you, like, what you believe about Jesus or why you believe the Bible is true, you you start explaining your theology to them, like what you understand and believe about God. So the question then is if your theology is good or not. Um, And... You know, this is not something that we do alone in a black and white room <laughs> covered with scrolls, scrolls, okay? Our beliefs about God um, really drive a lot of our actions just day to day. So this is really important for everybody. Um, and we're actually commanded in 1 Peter 3.15 to be prepared to give an answer when someone asks us the reason for the hope that we have. And when the Bible tells you to prepare for something, that's something you want to prepare for. <laughs> you want to be able to answer someone well. So... Tonight, we're going to be looking at four building blocks of Christian theology. Um, So these are just kind of foundational things. And really, we're just scratching the surface. But again, my hope is that this inspires you to dig into things yourself. Um, Just in understanding God, the Bible, and the way the world operates. So I'm going to be defining some key terms as we go. And because we are covering some huge topics, um, there's a lot that I'm not going to touch on. So if you have any questions that come up, you know, if you're like, wait, what about this? Just write that down. Like, be able to, you know, you're able to ask your small group leader, you can talk to me, another staff member, uh, and really find out the answers to your questions. And also, I would really encourage you, 
once you know kind of the direction to go after you've talked to somebody, dig into it yourself because that's where a lot of the best uh, learning and joy happens. So the first building block we're going to cover is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is the absolute most important thing for Christians to be sure of. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then later in the chapter, uh, Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's a pretty bleak picture of points if, you know, if Christ didn't raise from the dead. Um, his logic is basically that preaching and faith are useless, we're lying about God, we're still dead in sin, and we have no hope beyond this life. That's pretty sad. <laughs> so that's why we're starting with this. It's like number one thing. And um, again, there's a list of resources at the end of your handout. Case for Christ is an awesome one to start with if you want to know more about this topic. Um, that's where a lot of things that I pulled from for this talk are. So we basically have three questions to answer for this topic. Uh, the first one is how reliable are the, go- are the Gospels? You know, these like biographies of Jesus, like can we actually trust what they say about him? So how reliable are the Gospels? So we're going to first look at them as, like, as an authority as a biography, not, not as the divine word of God, um, not as scripture, just as history, okay? And there are different tests that scholars do to see how reliable historic documents are. And uh, we're just going to briefly touch on these. So the first one is the internal test. Okay, this is the first test of historical reliability. And the internal test is concerned with whether or not the document contradicts itself. So if it says one thing in one place and another thing in, this, in like the same you know, document says something opposite, like you can't really trust that. You know? That's kind of the logic there. And the Gospels, even though they have different focuses, you know, they come at diff- Jesus' life from different perspectives, and they're written by different people, they often tell about a lot of the same events in Jesus' life. So some examples are you know, the details of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, various miracles that Jesus did, and sometimes even specific conversations that he had. So this Venn diagram is just showing three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it shows like specific verses how much their overlap there is, okay? So there's a lot of consistency, not just in the Gospel books themselves, but also between them as they're coming at things from different perspectives. So that's a brief look at the internal test. The second test is the external test. And this is if it contradicts other accounts or known historical facts. So things outside the document, external test. Um, One example would be like archaeology. And we're going to take that as an example and just uh, look at the Gospels with that. 
So this is one area where the Gospels have been confirmed to line up with history, even when scholars uh, thought that certain people or places didn't exist. So two quick examples. Um, For a long time, people doubted the existence of Pontius Pilate. He's this guy in the Bible who, like, sentences Jesus to die, right? And they didn't find any evidence for him outside of the Bible. It's like, well, this guy doesn't exist. The Gospels were written way later, and he's a made-up guy. You know, um, in 1961, there was an inscription that was found that, among other, thing, other things, it read Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah, Judea. So, a picture. So that's you know they found that and they're like, oh, okay, he actually was a real guy. <laughs> now we know that. Um, the Pool of Bethesda is another example on this. It's where Jesus did some miracles, like uh, healing this guy who had paralysis. Um, And I'm just going to read the Wikipedia article on this because it was clear enough. It says, until the 19th century, there was no evidence outside of John's gospel for the evidence of this, for the existence of this pool. Therefore, scholars argued that the gospel was written later by someone without firsthand knowledge of the city of Jerusalem and that the pool had only a metaphorical rather than historical significance. In the 19th century, archaeologists discovered the remains of a pool fitting the description in John's gospel. Okay, so that's just two examples from archaeology where the Bible is proved true even when people didn't think it was true. You know, there was something they could test it against. So the external test is also reasonably satisfied. And again, there's a ton more you can dig into on this. This is just kind of like really brief points. Uh, The third test is the bibliographic test, which might send you right back to writing essays. Um, You know, like the bibliography is your sources, right? And that's what this is concerned about is the sources of things. How close was it to like an eyewitness you know, account? And the authors of the Gospels, all four of them, claim to either be eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection or to get their information from eyewitnesses of the resurrection. All right, so if a significant amount of time elapsed between like the earliest copy we have or if it was written like hundreds of years after the events, like, well, that's impossible. They can't have been eyewitnesses. Um, this, this infographic kind of sums up how the, Goth, the New Testament uh, measures up with some other historical documents. And these are things that all, uh, scholars like take as real history. Okay, so like just look at uh, Tacitus. You know, he's kind of a little way down the list. He was, it was written around the same time as the New Testament. Um, but the earliest copy that they have is a thousand years after it was written. So that means from the original to the earliest copy, there's a thousand years where they don't know what happened to it, all right? Um, the Gospels have, or the, the New Testament has 25 to 50 years between when it was written and when they have the earliest copies. So this is like testable in someone's lifetime. Like if the Gospels said something that was false, someone could just walk up to someone who had seen it and ask them if it was true, right? Uh, also, the number of copies, it's just, it's kind of ridiculous, Tacitus has 20 copies. Um, the New Testament has 24,000 uh, manuscripts that were, are found. So that's just one example of how the Bible measures up um, as far as like time between copies and things like that. And the next comparison, the next one, I just thought this was funny because you don't really get much out of it other than that the, the New Testament just, just has a bunch. It's just a lot, more than anything else. And there's not really much other helpful information there, but I thought it was funny. So... Um, so the next question we have to answer for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is, did Jesus actually die? So if the Gospels are accurately recording from the eyewitness perspective, 
then the other possibility is that they were tricked somehow and that somehow they thought Jesus died when he didn't die. So one theory is that Jesus wasn't dead when he went in the tomb, right? He got crucified, just like the gospel said. People saw that. But then he wasn't actually dead, okay? He actually was refreshed by the cool air in the tomb. And he walked up, found the disciples who were hiding in a house, and sat down with them and ate food, okay? And this really just comes from kind of a misunderstanding of the situation. Crucifixion was a really brutal method of execution, all right? The Romans made sure everyone died. Um, That's why they talk about stabbing a spear in Jesus' side. That was a common practice to see if someone was dead or not when they were being crucified. Um, And and the Romans actually posted guards around the tomb. So even if Jesus had gotten up, you know, with holes all over him and like pushed aside this giant stone in front of the tomb and started walking out, the Roman guards would be like, what the heck? Like, this guy wasn't dead. Just put him back, you know, they would just put him back in there, okay? Um, another somewhat popular theory is that the disciples, like, stole Jesus' body, and then they made up the whole thing. Okay, so this says they're actually lying to you on purpose. Uh, this would require every single person who knew about the deception to keep it to themselves for their whole life um, under the, like, torture, the threat of death, and their actual executions, all right? Most of the 12 disciples died really painfully. Um, So, you know, people don't die for something they know is false. And this leads into the next question. So if Jesus actually died, did he come back to life? So we know that Jesus is dead. And they say, okay, we'll grant you that Jesus is dead. But when people saw him after he died, they were just hallucinating. It's like they really wanted him to come back from the dead, but uh, he, he didn't. They were just seeing things. Um, again, this is kind of a misunderstanding. The disciples, when they, you know, heard about Jesus being resurrected, the picture is them hiding in a house afraid. <laughs> okay, they, they didn't have a predisposition to G- thinking Jesus would come back to life. Uh, the current Jewish belief was actually that one resurrection would happen at the end of time, and, like, that would be it. You know, there's no other resurrections. And so for them, for one person to come back to life would be kind of like, they didn't, they didn't have a, had a category for that. Um, and then there's some other problems with this as well. Um, Paul says that Jesus appeared to around 500 people at the, at the same time after he died. And so for that to happen, you know, 500 people don't have the same hallucination. Um, that's just not how that works. Also, if Jesus was dead in the tomb, then the Pharisees, the Romans would just bring out the body and they could have killed Christianity immediately just by saying, Hey, this guy you think is alive. Well, actually we have the body like right here. He's, he's dead. So we have good evidence that the resurrection actually happened. Again, these are just some um, kind of surface-level things that we can talk about, but we do, we do have really good evidence that the resurrection happened, and this proves that Jesus was who he said he was, which is the perfect Son of God and the Messiah. Okay? So this, this is the first kind of building block of Christianity. This is the most important thing. Um, and it's really important for the next building block that we're looking at, which is biblical infallibility. Biblical infallibility. The word infallible, it means incapable of making mistakes or being wrong, never failing or always effective. And this is not the same question of reliability that we looked at a minute ago. Okay, that's just looking at like, is this document actually historically accurate? 
Uh, this is concerned with whether something is the truth. Like the Bible claims that it's the completely reliable source of truth. So I can be like, things can be accurate, but not infallible. Like if you asked me the weather outside and I told you and I was right, I would be accurate. But that does not mean I am the truth on what weather is and how weather works. Okay. That's what the Bible is claiming is that it, it is the truth on how the world works and how God works, etc. And the Bible claims to be the truth in everything it says. So this may be really easy for you to accept. You know, it might be something you don't have a problem with, or maybe really hard. It may be something you struggle with. Um, but this is foundational for understanding the Christian faith. Because if the Bible doesn't tell the truth in all of it, then any part of it could be wrong. And we could know for sure what the Bible says about history, uh, about God, or about salvation. So this is like, again, really important. And because it has so much to say about so many areas of life, uh, it's important to understand why we can believe it's true. And it's a major starting point for telling people the reasons for the hope that we have, like 1 Peter 3.15 talks about. So really quickly, infallible uh, does not mean the Bible only speaks literally. Like there are metaphors in the Bible. There are some, the Bible can be highly symbolic, um, and it like describes things from the perspective of the human writers. So when the Bible like calls something a sunset, you know, it's, we're not going to look at it and be like, well, the Bible's wrong because actually the earth goes around the sun. The sun doesn't set around earth. Sorry, Bible. That's not how that works. The Bible can use metaphors. Uh, it, what it does mean is what infallible does mean is that all of what the Bible says about God, historical events, um, the state of people, how the world works, what's right and wrong, salvation, what the Bible says about itself, uh, all that is the truth if we interpret it correctly. So we're not after twisting and bending the Bible to fit into our system of thought. Okay, we're not trying to take the Bible and like make it say what we want to say. Um, what we're trying to do, all of us are trying to understand what God intended to communicate and then build our life and beliefs based on that. So we're fitting our beliefs into the Bible, not fitting the Bible into our beliefs. And the classic verse for this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is, you can trust the book of Proverbs to give you wisdom. You know, I can trust the book of Proverbs to give me wisdom. I can trust that when the Gospels talk about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, that that actually happened. And I can also trust that when the Bible talks about the Israelites marching around Jericho and then the walls falling down, I can trust that that happened too. It gets right in, in everything that it talks about. And the Bible is unique in this way. Um, nothing else is the divinely inspired word of God. So other books and sources can be true and helpful, especially as, as they pull principles from the Bible and as they explain the Bible, um, but they can't be God's word. So you don't want to ever look at an author and say, man, like some of his stuff goes against what the Bible maybe says, but I just really like him. So I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to believe what he says instead of the Bible. Um, we never want to do that. So this is what we're looking at is whether the Bible is infallible or not. And we want to know what evidence we can point to, you know, that the Bible is this divinely inspired word of God. Um, there are different ways to approach this. We're just going to talk about one way tonight. The hard thing, and uh, we want to avoid circular reasoning, okay? So 
something like saying, you know, the Bible says it's the word of God. And if the Bible is the word of God, then it has to be right. And it says it's the word of God, so it's right. <laughs> like, that's just, you know, assuming what we're, we're, we're trying to prove. We don't want to do that. Um, but we have a starting point through looking at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So if we're convinced that the historical accounts of Jesus are accurate, um, we really just need to ask, what did Jesus think about the Bible? So we have these sources that tell us about Jesus, and they actually tell us what he thought about the Bible. Jesus was pretty clear on this, uh, in the way he used Scripture and in the way he talked about Scripture. Uh, so in John seventeen seventeen, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That term, like your word, the Jews understood to mean the Old Testament. Okay, this was their, their Bible at the time. Uh, John 10, 35, some various translations of Jesus talking um, say the scripture cannot be broken or the scripture cannot be set aside. Okay, so all this is saying, Jesus is saying, like God's word cannot be broken. It is the truth, okay? Uh, so the first thing we want to clarify is the Old Testament which was written before Jesus came. Okay, this was, the Bi- this was the Bible that the Jewish people had at Jesus' time, was the Old Testament. So Jesus uh, used the Old Testament in several different ways. Uh, he used it to fight against Satan's temptations. So each time when Satan would tempt him in the desert when he's fasting, um, Satan comes up, up and says, hey, like, if you're really the son of God, do this. You know, if if you really want this, like I'll, I'll give it to you. You can just have to worship me. And in each circumstance, Jesus replies, it is written, and then quotes from the Old Testament. So he's basing all of his reasons for not doing it. He's not saying, ah, I don't really want to. He's saying, no, the Bible says this. And that's his, entire, that's his entire case against every one of Satan's temptations is the Bible says this. And then even when Satan tries to use scripture to tempt him, uh, Jesus says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Basically just telling Satan, like, actually you kind of took that out of context. Uh, you're not supposed to put God to the test. And then his arguments with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious leaders at the time. Uh, they went pretty similarly. Similarly, he would use scripture to end the argument. And a lot of times his point, like the reason he said what he said, would rest on just a word that they were misinterpreting or misusing. Uh, Mark 12 has some good examples of this. Just one example. The Sadducees were a group that believed in the authority of the Old Testament, uh, but they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They said, okay, well, like the Old Testament's true, but there's not enough evidence for a resurrection from the dead. It doesn't make sense. So they approached Jesus, who's this, you know, up-and-coming religious leader, and they say, hey, what if this woman gets married to this guy, right? Then he dies, and she marries the brother. He dies. That happens five more times, okay? And then she dies. She goes to heaven. Is she married to all seven of them? Like, come on. The resurrection you know, can't be true. And they're kind of trying to make it sound ridiculous. You know, it's like asking, could God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's like one of those questions that, that doesn't really make sense. And so Jesus replies. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given a marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Then he says, now, about the dead rising, so he's addressed their question, and now he's going for the core of their belief. He says, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, 
how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, so he rests his entire case for the afterlife on the fact that God said the words, I am, instead of I was. Because you can't be the person, you can't be the God of a person who doesn't exist anymore. All right, this is, these people are still in existence. God is still their God. And after that, it says that no one dared to ask him any more questions, which I think is great. Um, He also explained how prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to him as the Messiah. Um, That's a passage in Luke. So the Old Testament, Jesus really clearly believed, was authoritative enough to end any argument, and it was powerful enough to defeat Satan. So that points to him thinking that it's the word of God. It's actually divinely inspired. Um, And then the New Testament is our next thing. This was written after Jesus came. So he couldn't have like quoted Ephesians and then said, that's the word of God. Like we have to figure out something else here. Um, Jesus actually confirmed the authority of the apostles to write scripture. So that's great because that's what we need. Uh, in John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus is speaking to them, to the, to the disciples, the apostles. And he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that can be kind of confusing. There's there's a lot of um, things in there, but this quote from J.I. Packer uh, really clarified it for me and helped me to understand, so I'm hoping that will uh, do the same, but... Uh, G.I. Packer is a really famous theologian. He wrote a really great book called Knowing God. It's awesome. But G.I. Packer, on this quote, he says, uh, he had promised the 12 that the Spirit should come and teach them what in his own earthly ministry he had left unsaid. And he kept his promise so that the apostolic teaching was in reality the complete and final version of his own. So basically Jesus says, hey, I didn't say everything I needed to say. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and you're going to you're going to find those things, and you're going to write them. Okay. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, in Jesus' view, were all about the divinely inspired Word of God. Um, this line of argument avoids circular reasoning because it starts with the Gospels as basically historically reliable. It just says the events were accurate, and then they tell us enough for us to see that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah, and He's perfect, so He doesn't lie. And if Jesus, so he's, you know, a completely reliable source of truth. And then Jesus, being a completely reliable source of truth, tells us that we can completely trust the entire Bible as a completely reliable source of truth. I just really love that. It's really great. Um, So what this means for us is that we strive to set our beliefs and our values and our perspectives in line with all of Scripture, uh, not just what we naturally agree with. Uh, this goes back to 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting us, and training us. Um, so when we see a passage of the Bible that we kind of wish wasn't there, you know, it's like really countercultural, um, or we just wish it's kind of said things in a less offensive way or less blunt way, um, that's kind of too bad for us, honestly. Um, we, we really just have to wrestle with it until our perspective and our values are corrected by the word of God. And this can be really hard because the Bible says some things that are hard to deal with. 
But it is really important because as Christians, that's what we're saying we believe is that the Bible is true because that's what Jesus believed. Uh, The third building block we're going to cover is the fall. And this is going to be shorter than the others because it's really understandable and really clear in the Bible. So the Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve were created, they were able to act in perfect obedience to God, but they also had free will. And out of that free will, they chose to obey God. So this caused a separation of God and man, and the nature of people is sinful and rebellious toward God. So our situation is pretty bleak. Here's just some of the things the Bible says about people uh, naturally. It says that everyone has sinned. You know, all have sinned and fallen short in the glory of the glory of God. It says that you can't understand the things of God without having the Holy Spirit. So unless you already have the Holy Spirit, you can't even understand the things of God. It says the mind controlled by sin is hostile to God. It actually can't submit to his law, and it can't please him. So even if you think you're doing something good, if you're controlled by the sinful nature, you're actually not pleasing God anyway because you're, you're acting out of that sinful nature naturally. And because of all this, uh, we deserve hell. The Bible is really clear on that. And I kind of wish it said something, you know, like less like intense than that. You know, Revelation describes it as the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And it says that that's where we deserve to go. That's, that's crazy. Like that is really countercultural. I wish it said something else, but it doesn't. Um, all this points to the fact that everybody needs God to save them. We're incapable of saving ourselves. And we're enemies of God by nature. We're not just at a spiritual zero. Uh, we're actually enemies just by how we are. We're enemies of God. Um, and this really isn't something that we can shy away from in the way that we share the gospel or the way we think about people. People are not basically good. Every time we sin, we are prioritizing something above God in our hearts. Um, you know, we kind of tend to rationalize, especially for ourselves, but also for other people. It's like, man, it really wasn't that bad. Like, what I did wasn't that bad. Um, you know, I, it's not deserving of hell. Like, that's crazy. Um, but this minimizes how serious sin is. You know, we have this twisted perspective on sin because we just don't see how serious it is. And it also ignores the perfection of God's justice. So this is why in the gospel appointment sheet, you know, the sheet we go over with everybody, like we go through some of the Ten Commandments because those questions, like the have you ever lied, have you ever stolen anything, those make it really clear that we don't measure up to God's law. And then the, you know, the next page that goes through the consequences, that shows that we're eternally, you know, we're deserving of eternal punishment. Uh, So this is why we need the gospel more than anything else in life. And that's the last building block for tonight is the gospel. And I'm sure that all of the staff have talked in some capacity about the gospel. And that's because it's so important. So I'm going to talk about it again. Um, The exchange that the gospel offers is that God exchanges our sinfulness for Jesus' righteousness. That is amazing. Like we have this sinful, broken nature in us. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And God says, hey, let's make a trade. I'll take all the sin and I'll give you this perfection that my son earned while he lived. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this really clear. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this doesn't mean we're perfect in this life. 
you can talk to any Christian and realize that they're not perfect. Um, but God has credited us, credited us uh, with the righteousness of Jesus. So it's not our own. It's Jesus' righteousness. But God has said, hey, this applies to you now. Um, the theological term for this is justification. It's being made right with God. And we also exchange the spiritual death that we experience because of sin for eternal life in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. So when we put faith in Christ, um, God isn't suddenly neutral toward us. You know, we don't get set to a spiritual zero and then kind of have to work to earn the favor to get to heaven. Um, God actually sees us as his children. Um, we're free from the need to perform. And as we grow closer to being with God in heaven, as we go through this life, we actually get the privilege of being disciplined as God's children, which may not seem like a privilege on the surface, but it is. God is trying to make us more like Christ. And that's just a huge privilege. And the theological term for this is sanctification. It's being made holy. It's, you know, this idea that we're growing to be more like Christ while we're alive here on earth. And then the last thing I want to talk about are the purposes that God has in saving us. Um, so these are some, not all, but some of the big goals of Jesus dying um, stated in the Bible. One is to prove God's justice and righteousness. So Romans three twenty-five through 26 says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier, the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God is proving that he's righteous, he's going to punish sin, uh, and he's actually saving us as well. He's, he's letting us partake in his righteousness while Jesus takes the wrath that we deserved. He's proving that he's just and that he's righteous. And the second reason is to demonstrate God's love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved us enough to come and die for us. Uh, the third reason, the third goal, is to glorify God's grace. So Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in, kind, in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So salvation is like the best thing that can happen to us. It is the best thing that can happen to you. But it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. God's purpose in saving us is to glorify himself. 
And as we share this hope with people and we spread the good news of the gospel, uh, we get to be a part of those purposes. Um, I'm hoping that Chico Project and tonight specifically have been really encouraging for you, uh, not just to hear about God and his word, but to really see the impact uh, that learning about him can have on the way that you live. Um, And there are two verses I kind of want to leave with. One is one I mentioned at the beginning. It's 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So gentleness and respect are commanded uh, when we're representing God to other people. We don't use information that we learn um, to like beat our friends or other people in a submission. You know, we're like trying to get to them to the point where it's like, ah, oh, it's all just so logical. I have to accept Christ now. Like that, that does not work. People do not respond that way when they're being aggressively, um, you know, uh, talked to. But we want to be examples of God's kindness and love in people's lives. So gentleness and respect are really key. And the other one is 1 Corinthians 8.1. Uh, in this verse, Paul says that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So um, no matter how much we may know about God, um, we all have a lot to learn. Like even Gary has a lot to learn. Just like, wow, he's so far ahead of all of us. It's crazy. Um, But we all have a lot to learn. And keeping that kind of in our perspective, like, okay, I don't know everything. Actually, you know, I don't know much compared to a lot of people. Uh, It can really help you stay humble uh, when talking to others. Because acting in love is the goal. You know, our goal is not to use information to try and force people uh, to, commit, to, to commit their life to Christ. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to have about 10 to 15 minutes of personal reflex, reflection where you can answer the questions that are on the last page. Or you can just write down uh, any questions or thoughts that you really want to hold on to and just make sure you get to the bottom of. So you can talk to me or another staff member or your small group leader or the person you meet with really about any questions you have from tonight. Um, So we're going to go into that. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll start those few minutes. Lord, um, I just thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you that all of us get to do that here. And I just pray that um, we would really be consumed with a a passion to know you more, that we just never stop trying to know more about you and really how your law and love can apply to us. I pray that anything that I've said tonight that would be dishonoring to you or anything that um, was not completely true would just be removed um, from our minds. I pray that what is true, that what you've said in your word would stick. And Lord, I pray for this time that we're about to have, you would really just uncover things for us that we need to do, that we need to change in our lives so that we can really just take the next step that we have in um, loving you and desiring you. Let's pray that in Jesus' name.